others. And these stories are known as parables. Jesus would often cast a parable alongside his teaching to illustrate spiritual truths about the kingdom of God. And for those with ears to hear, parables would actually give clarity to Jesus' teaching. But for those without ears to hear, it would actually obscure his teaching. For some, parables serve to reveal Jesus' identity as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And for others whose hearts were hardened to Jesus, it only served to really just conceal his very identity to them. And in each of these parables, we've learned important truths about God's kingdom. In the parable of the sower, we learn that although many hear the gospel, only those who produce its fruit really understand it. Though they may hear it, only those who produce its fruit understand it. In the parable of the wedding banquet, we saw that wedding invitations have been sent out inviting everyone to the son's wedding, but only those who were prepared for it get to participate in it. In order to get in, you've got to wear the proper wedding attire. We must be clothed in Christ's righteousness, and that will cause us to live a righteous life before God. Then we looked at the parable of the unforgiving servant. We saw that God's people are a forgiving people, that those who've been forgiven of their sins will forgive others who've sinned against them because they understand how much they've been forgiven in Christ. And then last week, we looked at the parable of the friend at midnight, and we learned that the generosity of God really drives us to persevere in prayer when we may not receive an immediate answer in prayer from God. In our text today, we're looking at the parable of the two lost sons, famously called the parable of the prodigal son. However, this parable is much more than just the prodigal. In fact, as we'll see, it's just as much actually about the older brother in the story as it is about the younger brother. And more importantly, how their father relates to their lostness and how both are really instructive for us. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, the parable of the two lost sons. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I've got coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he'd spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother, your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and he pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, the parable of the lost sons right here is the third parable in a string of three parables that focus on the theme of lostness that really spans all of chapter 15. Each parable builds on the other, giving us really three different angles about something that is lost, being sought out, and then being found. All three parables focus on God's compassion towards sinners. The first two focus on the need and the extent of the search, such as we see with the lost sheep and with the lost coin. But the third parable is different in that it focuses on the need for what is lost to actually return in order to be found. And I think the main idea of the parable of the two lost sons, the main idea of our text I think is this, that every sinner who returns to God, every sinner, whether rebellious or righteous, every sinner who returns to God is received with great rejoicing. Every sinner who returns to God is received with great rejoicing. So whether you're a rebellious or you're religious, you're a hedonist or a legalist, both are lost. But our Heavenly Father rejoices over every sinner who repents, no matter where they're coming from. And we see this in both acts of the story that correspond to our two points, which I'm going to give to us as we actually go along through this story. In Act 1 of this story, Act 1, the focus is on the younger son's rebellion and return. We're going to see that in verses 11 through 24. We're going to focus on the rebellion and the return of the younger son. In Act 2, the focus shifts to the older son and his self-righteousness and the father's invitation for him to come in to the feast. We see that in verses 25 to 32, really focused on those two acts, those two parts of the story. And in the drama of this lostness comes the extravagant grace of the father, the extravagant grace of the father. Both sons are in need of it but we'll both respond and celebrate it. Point number one, 
Extravagant sin meets extravagant grace. To understand this parable, we need to understand Jesus' audience. And we really get at that in chapter 15 in the first two verses of that chapter. If you go back at the very beginning of chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, look there with me. Luke tells us that the tax collectors and the sinners were approaching Jesus to what? To listen to him. And then he says that the Pharisees and the scribes weren't listening, but they were complaining, saying, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So the religious establishment, Jesus accepting sinners and tax collectors, was an offense. Does he not know the sins that they've committed? Clearly, Jesus must be watering down his teaching. Why else would these sinners and tax collectors come to him? Look at who's attending, the outcast of society. The Pharisees and the scribes believed themselves to be in the kingdom for doing all the right things. The tax collectors and the sinners were representative of those outside of the kingdom doing all the wrong things. But Jesus gives this third parable to absolutely shatter their categories. He gives it to shatter their categories. And what he's doing right here is he's teaching us about who is in and who is out in his kingdom. And it all depends upon how they respond to him. Both of these characters correspond to the sons in the text. The younger brother corresponds to the tax collectors and the sinners. The older brother corresponds to the Pharisees and the scribes. And the father in the text represents God. So let's look at the younger brother in Act 1. The younger brother. In verse 12, the younger son asks his father to give him the share of the estate that he has coming to him. Now, normally, the share of the estate would go to the sons at the father's death, right? According to Deuteronomy 21, the younger son would receive a third of the estate. The older son would receive two-thirds of the estate because he was the firstborn. But in asking for his inheritance early, the younger son was effectively saying to his father, you are dead to me. Your money means more to me than you do. Your money means more to me than this family. And so this request was highly disrespectful. I mean, such an act would have been condemned. And for those sons who continued in their rebellious ways, disrespecting their parents, they were to be stoned, according to that same passage in Deuteronomy 21. But rather than picking up stones, what does his father do? He distributes the assets. And the word for assets right there, right, that word right there literally means life or livelihood. Look at how costly this was to the father. The family's very livelihood was tied to the land. That was their greatest asset monetarily. So to distribute it before its time would be, in essence, to lose their very life as a family. But the son, he didn't care. And so... A couple days later, he packed up and he headed out for a distant country. He wanted to get as far from his father as possible, to be free from all the constraints that he ever knew, or so he thought. Not only is he separated from himself from his family, but also from his community, God's people. He goes to a distant country, not the country of his own people, the country of Israel. And in that distant country, wild and free, he squanders absolutely everything that he has. 
In verse 30, we're told that included prostitutes, though it probably wasn't only that. There were other things that, in, that was included in that. And yet, in the muck and in the mire of his sin, it only gets worse. A famine hits the land, and he loses absolutely everything. Desperate to survive, he gets a job. But that job is working among pigs, which was prohibited according to Jewish law. They were unclean, and yet now he's working among pigs. His situation's so dire that he not only worked among pigs, but he actually longed to eat with them. That's how bad his situation was. But his co-workers did what? They didn't let him. <laughs> his situation was so bad, he could not even eat the food of pigs. This is truly a riches to rags story. He is alienated and separated himself from everything that he ever knew, his family, his people, and his God, willing to live in disobedience. He has learned the hard way. As it's been said, if you live for yourself, you'll end up being what? By yourself. If you live for yourself, you'll end up being and living by yourself. The first lesson that I think that we need to learn from this younger son's life is this. We need to see the futility in seeking self-fulfillment. The futility of seeking self-fulfillment. The younger son thought that having a fulfilling life meant that freedom, that that freedom was, that he was able to just to say and to do whatever he pleased, right? That's what true freedom looked like for the son. To conform to the standards of his youth was slavery in his eyes. No way would he do that. To pursue whatever would fulfill him, he needed to remove every standard and every rule in his life. He needed to be truly free. True freedom for him meant doing what's right and wrong in his own eyes. And in order to find his true self, he needed to live as he wanted to live, to do whatever made him happy. This was his pursuit of happiness and fulfillment. And friends, this is nothing new. The younger brother is nothing new in our own society. It's the very air that we breathe in our culture today. It's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. It's extremely important. It's one of the greatest myths within our culture. In essence, expressive individualism says that the purpose of life is to find your true self, your self-identity, and then to express yourself even when it goes against what you've been taught. That's expressive individualism. The purpose of life is to find your true self, your self-identity, and then to express yourself even when it goes against what you've been taught. Anything that restricts that individual freedom or self-expression is to be reshaped, it's to be deconstructed, or it's to be completely destroyed. You hear it in popular phrases, just be true to yourself or listen to your heart. We see it in the hit Disney movie, Frozen, and Elsa's famous song, Let It Go, where Elsa, the main character, sings these words. It's funny how some distance makes everything seem small. And the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and to break through. No right, no wrong. No rules for me. 
I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Elsa sounds quite noble and wise. We can give her some credit. But where did Elsa land? She got stuck in an ice castle prison of her own making. She got the throne that she wanted, but she was enslaved in a prison of ice. We see this with the younger brother. He threw off the rules. He blazed his own trail. Nobody telling him what to do. But in the end, it ended in despair, in isolation, in emptiness. He thought that he would find his purpose, but he ended up lost in a pigsty. In a pigsty. He thought that he could listen to his heart, but that landed him in the mud. And seeking to discover himself, he actually ended up losing himself. Friends, the message of self-fulfillment promises freedom, but it ultimately enslaves. It rejects conformity, but it longs for acceptance. It breeds isolation because it depends upon self-reliance. It's a form of self-salvation where you are on the throne of your life. Nobody telling you what to do. But the scriptures actually give us great hope in such lostness. They give us a far greater hope in this lostness of the younger brother. When we've, when we've bought into this lie, the scriptures actually shed light on the truth to what true life is. That the way to be true to yourself is actually to die to yourself. To crucify the self that the world tells you to be true to. To put off, in Paul's words, the old self, corrupted by deceitful desires, and to put on the new self that is created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. This is only possible because the Son of God left his home for a different country. Not to squander his life, but to give it so that others may have life to the full. Rather than coming to fulfill himself, he came and he emptied himself by becoming a servant in the likeness of humanity. Instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross in obedience to his father. Because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord to the praise and glory of God the Father. Jesus was not seeking self-salvation because he is the way of salvation. So how do you respond? How do you respond to this truth about Jesus if your hope of fulfillment and happiness is still set on being true to yourself? How do you respond if you find yourself in that situation? Look at the younger brother. Look at the younger brother. You respond like him, but you don't wait until you hit rock bottom to respond like the younger brother. The second lesson that we learn from the younger brother is the necessity of repentance. Look at verses 17 to 21. The necessity of repentance. Verses 17 to 21. What we're going to see right here are really three ingredients of the younger son's response to his sin that ought to be characteristic of every Christian. It really reveals to us the doctrine of repentance in the scriptures. 
Not just repentance initially at conversion, but repentance that's continual throughout our lives. Right? So three ingredients that we see in repentance. The first thing that we see with this younger, this younger son is that he's convicted. He's convicted over his sin. In verse 17, it says that the son came to his senses. His sin made him out of his right mind. And now he sees his sin for what it is, that it's, it's death. Not only does he recognize his sins, but he's also disgusted by them. While he's there dying of hunger, his father's servants have more than enough food. And he recognizes that. How foolish. His sin is irrational. And he comes to that recognition. The son comes to see this, and he utterly hates it. His sorrow clearly is not superficial, but it's serious. It's serious sorrow. He's, sorrow, he's sorrowful because ultimately he's lost, he's not just lost the things of the world, that would be worldly sorrow. But instead, it's because of what the things of the world has done to his life in relation to his father, which is godly sorrow. It's sorrow over the sin committed against a good and holy God rather than regret over the consequences of his sin. As it's been said, before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet to you. And so the first thing that we see is that he is convicted over his sin. The second thing that we see is that he confesses his sin. So he's convicted of his sin, now he confesses his sin. He calls his actions what they really are. He calls them sin. He names it. He's not beating around the bush and making excuses. Father, I have sinned. To confess is to recognize what we've done. It's how we give vent to our sorrow over our sin. And in verse 18, he confesses that he sinned against who? Against heaven and in the Father's sight. Sin is always, first and foremost, against God before it is against others. It's against him. It's exchanging the truth about God for a lie, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. His confession, you'll notice, is also self-accusing. It's self-accusing. He's charging himself with the sin, with this sin, before his father even passes judgment on him. He declares, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. That's what I deserve. I'm going to go ahead and just pass judgment on myself right now. <laughs> no sense in waiting on you to do that. He feels shame for what he has done. And he wants to repay his father for it. He wants to make restitution to his father for this. The son's repentance is genuine because he's not making excuses. He's making a genuine confession. When we repent, we don't make excuses. We confess. We name our sin. We confess that we're a sinner who has sinned against a sinless, holy God who deserves our worship. And yet we have sought to exalt ourselves and usurp his throne and put ourselves on his throne. True repentance involves a conviction over your sin and a confessing of your sin to God. And ultimately, and inevitably, that's going to lead to change in your life. That's the third thing that we see right here with the son. He changes his direction. He's got a conviction. We see confession. And there is a change of direction. 
The son doesn't remain in the pigsty. He gets up and he goes to his father in verse 20. He turns from his wicked ways and he goes home. He changes directions from where he was going. And as he approaches the father, did you notice he comes empty-handed? He doesn't have a drink in one hand and the prostitute in the arm of the other. He comes empty-handed before the father. He leaves all of that behind him. Yes, he came as he was. He came as a sinner, but he left his old self in the mud. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus because when you come to Jesus, he will make you clean. You will crucify the old self and put on the new. Genuine repentance is more than just feeling bad about your sin. It's more than just confessing your sin. It also includes turning away from your sin and turning toward Jesus in faith. Repentance is a change of what you love, exchanging your sin that gave you death for your Savior who actually gives you life. This doesn't mean that you're ultimately going to be sinless. We live in a, in a fallen, sinful world. You will still sin. But the difference between the non-Christian and the Christian is repentance. That is the difference. So how do you distinguish them? It's repentance. Are they going to turn away from their old man, from their old life, from their old self, and turn to Christ and be made new? But more important then what we turn from is ultimately what we turn to. More important than what we turn from is who we turn to. What you leave behind pales in comparison to the one that you gain. The third lesson that we learn right here under point one from this first act is that the Father's extravagant welcome compels us to want to return. It's extravagant, and that extravagance compels us to want to return. Look at verses 20 to 24. How does the father right here respond to his son? He sees him a long way off. And the father doesn't furrow his brow. He doesn't just cross his arms, shake his finger, tap his feet. He doesn't do that. Instead, he runs to him in big-hearted compassion. He throws his arms around his neck. He kisses him. Now, typically, Middle Eastern men of this father's age would not run because that was often considered undignified. But the father throws dignity to the wind out of love for his own son. Like the shepherd who seeks out the lost sheep, the woman who searches diligently for that lost coin in the passages just before this, this father runs to his son throws his arms around his neck and kisses him before he even begins and finishes his confession to him. Author Rachel Gilson put it well whenever she said this, that in Christ we are not pursued like wanted criminals. In Christ you are not pursued like wanted criminals, but like wanted children or like wanted lovers, because wrath is replaced with desire. Friends, when you repent, you're not turning to the condemnation of God, but to his compassion and celebration. You know what you're turning from, death. And when you turn to God, you are turning 
to life. The father does all of these things, not because the son is innocent, but because the son is loved. When you turn away from your sin to Christ in faith, no longer are you treated like a criminal, but you are treated like a son and a daughter of the high king of heaven. Notice right here that the son right here, does, he doesn't even get to finish his I'm sorry speech in verse 21. Did you notice where the father cut him off right there? How far does he get in to his confession? Right before he asked his father to make him a hired worker. Interesting, isn't it? He deserves to be a hired worker for the rest of his life, paying his father back for what he's done. But the father receives him as his son. And then he restores his standing in the family by calling for the robe, for the ring, for the sandals, for the fattened calf to be slaughtered. All of that is to restore this criminal to the status of son. He is restoring his standing in the family. Why? Because he says, this hired worker of mine. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Look at the text. Right there in verse 21. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Friends, when you repent of your sins, this is the Father's welcome for you. That's extravagant, and it's absolutely glorious. Each of us deserves to pay God back with eternal punishment for our sin, but he has sealed our pardon with the blood of his son. Jesus paid our sin debt by his death and resurrection. For any who would turn to God through faith in Jesus, your sin is paid. Your guilt is pardoned, and your position as a son and daughter is now restored in the family of God. Extravagant sin meets extravagant grace when we return to God. No matter how far that you've run, it takes one step to come back. You just need to return to the Father. And if the Lord loves you, even at your worst, when you're in a pigsty, if he loves you even at your worst, you know you're secure in his arms forever. Why would you choose sin over this extravagant grace and love? Gospel logic says this is illogical (laughs) to do such a thing. Come home to the Father's love for you in Christ. Though the younger son was far from home, it's often those closest to home, though, that are actually the furthest away. And we see this with the older brother. Look with me at the second point. Self-righteous sin meets costly grace. Self-righteous sin meets costly grace. As the older son comes in from working in the field, he hears music. He hears dancing. And so he asks one of the servants, what are all the commotions about? The servant tells him in verse 27 that his younger brother has returned and his father has slaughtered the fattened calf for him. As the reader, we would expect, wow, he's got to be excited, a party. This is going to be great. 
The fattened calf slaughter, I mean, like, that kind of meat is rare. We don't eat that all the time. Like, let's go. I'm ready to go. Instead, we get anger. We get resentment. Rather than going and celebrating his, son, his brother's return, he remains outside. And the father comes and he pleads with him to come into the feast. And in verses 29 and 30, the older son really reveals his own heart and why he's angry. Look at verses 29 and 30 with me. The older son says to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. So what is it that's actually keeping the older brother from coming into the feast? He tells us right there. He tells us, I've never disobeyed your orders. That's what's keeping him from coming into the feast. Unlike the younger brother, it's not his disobedience that alienates him. It's actually his obedience. Not his unrighteous living, but his self-righteous attitude. To be self-righteous is to, be con- is to consider oneself superior to others because, they live, because you ultimately live a morally upright. It's to look down upon everybody else, to grade yourself on a higher scale than them. And we see this with the older brother. Looking at his father, he points to his track record. Look at all I've done for you. I'm the one who deserves this celebration. Father, you owe me for everything that I've done for you. In the eyes of the older brother, his standing in the family was based upon his performance rather than his relationship with the father. And because he's not being rewarded properly, he tries to control the father right here by keeping him in his debt. You owe me. The older brother, he gets it. He knows how much this is going to cost him to reinstall his brother in the inheritance. That means another third is going out from his two-thirds of the estate. He gets exactly how costly this grace is going to be to forgive him of what he's done. In his eyes, his brother and his father were worth losing for that inheritance. They are worth losing for it. In essence, his relationship to his father was based on what the father could give him rather than the father himself, which is important. I love how the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon illustrates this dilemma in the story of the carrot and the horse that he once gave. He says, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in a land. And one day, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown and ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart and he turned. And as the, as the man turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you as a free gift 
so that you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed, and he was delighted, and he went on rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this, and he said to himself, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present to you, as a token of my love and my respect for you, this horse. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, Thank you. And he dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. That gardener, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The son's good deeds were not done for the father, they were done for himself. And look at the result of such self-righteousness. It leads to anger when others don't meet your demands. It leads to insecurity toward the father's assurance. You never gave me a goat. Is he going to lose the father's love? It keeps a scorecard of wrongs to promote oneself. It expresses itself by a sense of entitlement. And ultimately, it's born out of a fear of man. Both the younger son and the older son were pursuing the self in different ways. One, by throwing off all the rules. The other, by keeping all of the rules. One was a hedonist, the other was a moralist. Both were self-centered, both were lost, and both ultimately inside were empty. Both sought to be on the throne of their own lives by different means. But the difference between both of them is that one returned. One returned while the other was left outside. And why was he left outside? Because he forgot who he was. Look at verse 31. Son, you hear the father's patience, you hear the father's grace in that title, son, speaking to his older son. You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. All he could have ever needed was ultimately found in the Father. But he made it about himself. The good deeds were not done out of pleasure for the Father, but because he loved himself. Brothers and sisters, where do you see the older brother in your life? You don't have to throw a hissy fit like this in order to be self-righteous, right? You don't have to do that. Do you find yourself keeping a track record of the sins and missteps of others? Do you identify others by their sins? Now think about that. When you look at others, do you identify them by their sins and now you view them in light of their sins rather than their identity in Christ? Do you call for justice before you're willing to show grace? Do you feel entitled to appreciation when you've done something good? Do you find yourself often critical of others without putting yourself under the microscope. Friends, the problem 
is that we've forgotten who we are when we are the older brother. We define ourselves by our passions or by our performance and not according to a person. That person is the greater older brother. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the strain between younger brothers and older brothers. And inevitably, the younger ends up, the older brother ends up serving the younger. I try telling my brother about this all the time, but he just doesn't listen to that. But we see it all throughout the scriptures. The younger brothers often outsmart and outlast them. And yet, the elder brother who holds the place of honor in the family as the firstborn fails time and time and time again. We saw it with Abel's older brother, Cain, with Jacob's older brother, Esau. We saw it with Joseph's older brothers. We saw it with David's older brothers. And culminating right here with the older brother in this parable. And yet in Jesus, we have a greater older brother who lives up to that honor. He doesn't stand unfazed by our wandering. He instead came to seek and to save the lost. Like the shepherd who lost, who searched for the lost sheep and the woman the lost coin, he searches high and low for that lost younger brother. He knew how costly grace was and he still sacrificed himself, paying the ultimate cost of his own life to bring us home to God. Only by his death for our sin could both foolish younger brothers and elder brothers like you and me be reconciled to our father. He didn't sit back. He didn't sulk. He sought and saved us for himself. And now we are sons and daughters of our father in heaven. In Christ, all that is his is ours. This is who we are. This isn't just as good as anything that this life can offer you. Oh, well, that sounds like everything else I can get in my life. No, I don't think you understand. There is nothing in this life that can offer you this. This is far better and it far exceeds anything you will ever receive. The Father pleads for us to come, but only those who do get to eat at the king's table. Jesus is showing the Pharisees and the scribes that it's possible to leave the Father without leaving the farm, as it's said. That what they thought earned them a spot in the kingdom was actually keeping them out of the kingdom. What's needed is repentance. Repentance, not just of wrongs that have been done, but also the wrong reasons that we've done the right things. The wrong reasons for why you do the right things. Only those who repent will reap the reward of the eternal feast of heaven. The final thing, you probably noticed that this ends in a cliffhanger. You're kind of left like, well, what happens to the older brother? Does he go in or does he stay out? What happens? But the point is for you to ask yourself the same question. You've got to ask yourself the same question. Will you return to the Father or will you remain in your sin? One brings condemnation. The other is a celebration for all eternity. What will it be for you. Let's pray.